0: Hello friends, Steve Cross here and welcome to The Puddin' Prometheus.
1: Self-indulgence. Conceptual mind
0: f-ery. If no one knows and no one cares, that's you? the only way you can get away with anything in this world. Hello, friends. If there's one thing every podcaster knows, is that people who've just written a book are really easy to get on your podcast, because they're desperate to have any sort of chance to talk about their book. But you know what we do here. We don't do things the way everyone else does. So I've got an entirely new book format for you with the incredible materials scientist Anna Porzyski. So let's listen to Books I Never Wrote. Hello everybody, welcome to Books I Never Wrote. Uh, My name's Steve Cross, today we're joined by the wonderful Anna Porzaisky to talk about not the book she has wrote, but another book that a robot has wrote based on her work. Anna, Hello. Hello. Um who are you? Can you tell our list, fill our listeners in a, a bit about you and your your life story? Maybe don't give us the full biography because I know they have to buy the book for that
1: They do indeed so I am a non robot science writer. I'm a human person who um writes stories about science. My background is material science. And I've spent the last three years writing a book called Handmade, A Scientist's Search for Meaning Through Making. It's all telling stories about materials, telling stories about my life, telling stories about the intersections between the world of craft and the world of material science. Um, And it was really an exercise on what would happen if we wrote a popular science book that isn't aimed at normal popular science audiences, i.e. What? Do you mean middle-aged
0: white guys with science degrees? (laughs)
1: Indeed, I, what I, I, if you wrote a book? I am that
0: demographic, <laughs> and I don't exactly. read popular science books. Well, now, well, yeah, um, exactly. but we're not. We're not as ever, though, we're, we're not here to talk about your book. We're here to talk about an entirely new version of your book uh, written by an artificial intelligence. And um, what's very kind is that you've agreed to record a couple of chapters of this for our audience to listen to. So the way that we've generated these chapters is I feed the AI. And the AI I've been using is called uh, InfoKit. If you go to infokit.com. Um, I feed it the first sentence and a couple of words um, of a chapter of Anna's book and then it fills in what it thinks Anna should have written To give you an idea of how good it is at generating text that sounds like it's probably about right I just fed it the phrase, hi Anna, how are things? And it continued with, your friend had a great idea and I agree with it I'm going to spread the word to my friends who are parents to take a weekend at the park and do homework together with their kids That's pretty good advice that it's is good un- advice. It's un- unlikely advice for, uh, I mean, do you know a lot about kids and homework?
1: No, I would say no.
0: I fed it the first words of your chapter, Glass. And those words read, my phone alarm spooks me from fitful slumber. And for a moment, I can't remember where I am. Groggily. And that's the amount that I fed it. And it produced this, which you've kindly read for us in your very best audiobook voice.
1: Chapter one. My phone alarm spooks me from fitful slumber, and for a moment I can't remember where I am. Groggily, I rub the sleep from my eyes. All around me, the familiar sights of the station are sparkling with lights. The fog of orange gas, the red metal steps, the flickering white fluorescent lights. The station, where two men were killed on the night of February 9th, 2014, I'm running to pick up a relative at Union Station. She'd flown in that morning from Seattle and she's run from the train to the gate where I meet her. Her hair is a little wispy, but otherwise her face is shiny with sleep. Her flight had landed at 4.52pm and I take her back to my apartment to meet my husband, who's on his way home. At 11.15pm I finally crawl into bed. I am worn out and tense, anticipating what will be a sleepless night. But even as I lay in bed, my brain is racing with thoughts. I picture the gun. I replay the last minutes of Scott's life, like a horror film of his hands balled into fists, his eyes glassy, his jaws clenched. I can't shake the feeling that he saw me in his last moments. Last time, DC police shot a mentally ill person. For weeks, I will replay Scott's death again and again. More than two years later, I will still find myself googling the rules of the Mental Health Parity Act, searching for the most efficient way to file a claim with the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Because of my encounter, I know that it is my right to a full investigation. I hope that if I share my story, the officer will face appropriate discipline. On March the 20th, I will get a letter from the Justice Department. The response from the department says it doesn't have enough information to make a determination on whether it will investigate. A week later, the head of the DC Police Union will tell a reporter that the DC police acted appropriately and that Scott did have his hand on his gun and that is where the dispute was. The police narrative, which was not questioned by the Police Department's Internal Affairs Division, was only questioned by the DC medical examiner, who ruled the shooting justified. That day, I will get a call from the Justice Department asking to talk. After I leave, I will settle into my bed, ready to answer any questions. But the person on the line won't be from the Civil Rights Division. It will be the FBI. Hi, I will say, I am not connected to the government. I will explain that I live in the district and the police department is the government. I will admit that I'm nervous. I will say I understand it's hard for the FBI to investigate a police shooting, even when the victim is not involved in a crime. But I will also say that I believe my interaction with Scott Williams was unjustified. I will say that he was armed and may have been acting in a threatening manner. I will say that he should have been in a hospital receiving psychiatric treatment. I will say that the police may have made an administrative error. They did not have Scott arrested. But they did have him committed to a hospital. And for that reason, they were allowed to kill him. On May 1st, 2014, the medical examiner's report will come back. According to the report, Scott was not intoxicated or under the influence of drugs or alcohol the night of February the 9th. There was no alcohol in his blood, no cocaine, no meth. The autopsy states that there was a small amount of heroin in his system, but the report also indicates that Scott had been given a prescription drug for insomnia three days before he was shot. The medical examiner ruled the death a suicide, which was not at all surprising. That is the line the police department has been pushing for the past two years. But the autopsy says Scott committed suicide by self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head with a 9mm handgun. This is a clarification that I thought the government would have already taken, a reminder that the first time I got a letter from the Justice Department, they didn't do anything. I sat with Scott in a park in the suburbs of Washington. He had been released from a psychiatric hospital after a series of suicide attempts. When we met, I wasn't sure what to expect. This man had been locked away for years when he needed help the most. As he lay in the grass, I held his hand and his shoulders shook. He cried out and held his head. I told him that he had a choice. He could die at home, in a locked room with the television turned off, or he could die in a park, in the company of a complete stranger. I said this was his decision, not mine. I wasn't sure what to say next, and I was scared to speak. A dozen thoughts raced through my mind, every one of them hostile. I could tell him to kill himself, or I could apologise for his past, or I could just stand there and listen. I said nothing. In the end, Scott threw away the gun and took his own life. He was found by police the next day. Weeks after his death, the DC Police Department acknowledged its failure. It reopened the case and examined the use of force in the past five years. It sent a representative to Maryland to talk to the other officers who were there that night. The story was everywhere. National news outlets, local blogs, newspapers in Washington. I wrote a piece about it for NBC. The months passed and the investigation dragged on. When the internal affairs report came back, it contained a list of systematic failures. But it still concluded that the police department's use of force was justified. I wasn't surprised. When Scott's story was still front page news, the police chief and mayor claimed there had been an error. Now, it was clear that they knew.
0: So, Anna, now that we've heard uh, how a robot writes as you, and possibly now we've heard your next book, um, what do you think? Do, Do you think the robot caught your voice?
1: I quite enjoyed the the descriptive words her hair is a little wispy you know that that definitely does capture some of what I'm about as a writer but I have to say the content was not quite there for me
0: I do wonder what it's trained on
1: definitely I would think this this AI has been made by an American there was a lot of um, you know America centric uh language that being said, my book failed to sell in America. So if this AI would like to <laughs> rewrite my mm. book for the American audience, I would be jolly grateful.
0: And I think during during the next reading, we're definitely going to pick up on the uh, American nature of this AI because it has uh, apparently it has a very large prejudice <laughs> shared by a large number <laughs> of the American people <laughs> that we're going to um, find out about. Now, I should tell you that one of the hardest bits about doing this is that it generates text in uh, 1000 character chunks. So you have to keep deciding how many to do, which means it's got no idea about endings. So like I could have generated another 5000 words of this just Mm. going round and round and round again, the Justice Department and the Police Department all arguing (laughs) and Scott's death becoming and not becoming an accident over and over and over (laughs) again.
1: That was a bit of a twist wasn't it? Um but I thought the the sort of cliffhanger ending was pretty good actually.
0: Oh that was me I cut a few words off the end. Oh. <laughs> Because what it it then has is, and then the, because it's used up the thousand characters. So with both of these, I did cut the hanging words off the end, um, because if it didn't complete a whole sentence, I thought, it's going to sound very unprofesh on your recording. Mm,
1: mm, A real cliffhanger.
0: (laughs) That was was really uh, important to me. One of the things that I think I have to do after we record this is go and Google and see whether any of this is real you know, what did it just feed it, you know, create enough words that that triggered a specific article that it's learned and then just mm. regurgitate that article. Um, I mean, that would be very disappointing if all it does is randomly find a chunk of existing text and slap it after your sentence.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in what text it learned how to write from, um, because it's obviously set in the modern day, you know, the yep. the murder occurred on the ninth of February, 2014. Um, that those are some those are obviously choices that it has made, but I wonder what what inputs influence those choices.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I can tell it different things. So I can tell it I want you to write fiction, or I want you to write a blog, or I want you to write news. I didn't tell it everything, anything. So the whole idea of this being narrative, it picked up just from your first sentence. It's clearly enough mm. to establish this is a first person narrative. So it got yeah. That- It didn't, I don't think, mention glass at any point.
1: No, it didn't. Which
0: was a bit sad. That's the the main, the the test we were really setting it (laughs) is from this one sentence about waking up, can you tell that this is a text about glass? The nice thing is the world's not so deterministic that it could. If it had actually, I mean, the other thing is we know this wasn't trained on your book because it Mm. would have just regurgitated chapter one of your book. Mm. surely that's the perfect answer for an ai in this situation i mean
1: it's been edited enough times that it is essentially just like an iterative loop on itself by these days um but the the tenses i thought was really confusing to me as i read it through um obviously the it starts in the sort of present tense i can't remember where i am and then and then we're in sort of um we stay in the present tense and then we go into this sort of dream-like state where we, yes. it says for weeks i will replace scott's death again and again and then we're in this <laughs> more than two years later i will i will do this that day i will get a call
0: it has these weird things that feel like almost directions for a script like now let's flip all the way back to the last time the dc police shot a mentally ill person yeah it's so- yeah exactly it's awkward. I have to say my favourite bit for the whole thing is the, uh, but the person on the line won't be from the civil rights division. It will be the <laughs> FBI. Hi, I will say, I am not connected to the government.
1: So good. <laughs> to be fair, that is exactly the sort of thing I would say if I thought the FBI was calling me up, because I have a real thing about sort of authority figures. Yeah. <laughs> so if I felt that they were ringing me up, that is exactly what I would say. I would panic and just be really weird.
0: I love that, uh, that halfway through it decides um, he was not under the influence of drugs. Um, there was no alcohol in his blood, no cocaine, no meth, but there was heroin.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, what listeners won't be able to see is that that heroin reveal is on a different paragraph.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so good. There's no drugs. I mean, apart from heroin. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's very much like, you know, me telling a story after a couple of pints. Oh, no, I forgot. There was... <laughs>
1: It does read a bit like that, yeah. I tried to put those paragraph pauses in my rendition.
0: Is that the sort of thing you learn to do as a professional audiobook reader?
1: You don't get any training as a professional audiobook reader. They literally just put you in a room and tell you to start reading, yeah.
0: Oh dear! Do you have to redo it with notes, like, uh, like when you write?
1: Yeah. So you have you're reading it in a in a tiny room on your own, and then there's a producer in your ears. So as you're reading, occasionally they'll interrupt you and say, "Oh, can you just say that bit again?" Or "Oh, you said that word wrong," um, and then they make oh you redo that.
0: I thought the most boring job in the world would be reading audiobooks, but it's not. It's sitting listening to somebody (laughs) reading audiobooks and pointing out when it's going wrong.
1: So it's an incredible operation. So there's me in the room reading the book and then there's the producer behind that reading along and and correcting. Behind the producer in real time, there is an editor editing as we read so that the whole thing gets produced as I'm reading it, basically. Cool. I've just Mm.
0: noticed that Scott shoots himself in the head just after he's thrown away his gun.
1: He does, yeah. That That yeah. is a plot
0: <laughs> hole. <laughs> yeah, I think they might need an editor to rearrange some of that.
1: <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I'm not sure about some of the timelines as
0: well. well that, this is, you know, it's a first draft. First draft of everything is not mm. very good. I'm trying to swear less on this show. That's what Hemingway said, isn't it? The first draft of everything is not up to scratch. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you what would be really interesting is if we took this and actually submitted it to a publisher um, as the first draft, you know, as the sample chapter and said, you know, what do you think?
0: I think we could tidy it up and then that's your second book proposal written, isn't it? What's what's the second book going to be about?
1: Oh, well, the second book was going to be about the end of life of materials, which does tie in nicely to Scott's story. Um, But... I started writing the proposal and then I got extremely bored of it immediately. So um the second book is actually probably going to be more like fiction rather than non-fiction.
0: What I might do then is generate a, a chapter of the uh, end of materials book slap it in the show notes for the listeners. Yep. Let's um do it. so I also fed uh Infokit the beginning of chapter 3. And this is where Infokit really I think it lost its way in a big 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 way. <laughs> We fed, I fed it the words, it was the summer of 2011 and I was being driven through the Nevada desert by a 50-year-old French lorry driver called Lupo, the air temperature was. That was where I left it, right? And I walked away and I said, Inficit, do your thing. And what it did, now, trigger warning for all French lorry drivers. <laughs> if you're a French yes. lorry driver, you might want to stop listening now. And this is what it did, read by Anna in your very best audiobook voice.
1: Chapter 3 It was the summer of 2011, and I was being driven through the Nevada desert by a 50 year old French lorry driver called Lupo. The air temperature was hovering just above zero. I felt faintly queasy from the onset of hypothermia and felt sure I would soon lose consciousness. In typical fashion, Lupo became increasingly dismissive of my distress and overdramatic in his attempts to heat the cab. It was already evening and, without warning, he would switch off the aircon and light a small fire in a large metal box under the rear seats. As my body went into a vicious, near-hypothermic shock, I would reach up, frantically, to pull on the hem of his neck warmer as he puffed through the plumes of smoke. Then I would fall silent. Each time this happened, he would angrily interrupt me to say that I wasn't ill and that it wasn't a problem. As long as you're getting home, that's all that matters, he would say. Finally, he picked up his phone and dialed one of his French mates. You have to get rid of her, he said. She's sick. Of course, he didn't know that I wasn't actually sick. But, like many a French lorry driver before him, he was effectively convinced that because I had a doctor's note to prove I was safe to drive, that there must be something wrong with me, not his heating system. Lupo knew what he was doing, though. His mates are used to him pulling the same stunt with them in France. It is the peculiar philosophy of French truckers that it is an occasional occupational hazard to drive in snow and ice. Cheryl found that when she was with him, she was not only cold, but was constantly snapped out of it by his windscreen wipers. When they have to pull over and begin to load, a group of them will grab up everything they can carry from the cargo area and start running around the truck, with the journey only beginning when they have extinguished their bonfire in a nearby field. It seems bizarre... But once they have hauled enough cargo out of their lorry, they continue driving in the dark, desperately hoping to make it home before dawn and packing all the boxes back in at the same time. As for their French colleagues, they have never known a white Christmas. But Cheryl believes the French mentality is rooted in the past. Before the Second World War, thousands of French peasants would travel to the farmhouses of the German Empire to work in the fields in the depths of winter. From somewhere, they had to gather the wood to fire their own stoves. They made the journeys over snow-covered fields, often at daybreak, carrying the family's few belongings. But it was all worth it because the farmhouses were much more comfortable than the shacks where they lived back home in the French countryside. Many of them had barely enough food to last through the winter months and would be lucky to survive their first winter. The French farmers regarded it a mark of distinction to work hard in the snow, toiling from sunup to sundown. So, perhaps, the spirit of the French farmer and the Frenchman travelling in the snow is part of our own history and part of the legacy of the continent's past. Certainly, in this modern age of... Of modern transport there seems to be little reason why large vehicles should not have the latest in heating and cooling technology while also being capable of moving away from the old wayward ways of the past that is why i insist on traveling with the british holiday autos team when they are delivering to british campsites in the french pyrenees so they know all about the issue And I insist on Cheryl, our saleswoman, trying to find out whether their hire truck drivers are really suffering when she drives them to and from the campsite. So on a frosty December night, when she returned us from the campsite with a report, I listened with interest to what she had to say. When the van containing the camp furniture had not arrived at the allotted time, she had driven the drivers, including Lupo, to a nearby village to collect a few more heavy packages. Our customer's parked car was in front of a barn, and in front of it, in the frosty dark, was the missing van. As soon as Cheryl and Lupo had crept up the drive, another delivery van arrived, and was quickly filled up to bursting with boxes. Their van remained sitting where it had been left, next to the barn, with two cheerful-looking Frenchmen sitting inside. Cheryl said she was sure they were celebrating having delivered their first Christmas order. She even thought she had heard the clang of bottles in the back. Now I was impressed, but I knew something was not quite right. The next day, I asked them about the celebrations. ''Well, actually, it's quite a small party,'' said Lupo. ''There's no great partying. Everyone's going home to warm up. After this, they're going to get a few hours sleep and then be up early for a short trip to the petrol station to fill up the car.'' I was astonished that Lupo, who had just pulled off a miracle of logistics, would have let down his guard.'' And so it was that my misgivings about French truckers, and I know there are some great truckers out there, proved correct. For when the French holiday system comes to an For when the French holiday season comes to an end, it's like a machine that has been switched off. As usual, they spend every waking moment traveling. They simply cannot stop. Once home, they would quickly get out their lawnmower and complete any minor gardening jobs before getting stuck into the weekend's long-haul driving. And I wonder if there are ever any days off during the holidays. It's a terrible situation and one that's got to be addressed. When it comes to truckers, though, I'm afraid we are powerless.
0: Anna, so um, you just had to actually have those words come out of your mouth. I how didn't. how did it feel?
1: Well, I made the decision not to go with the accent. Listeners Good. will have noticed, first of all. I thought these French lorry drivers are having a bad enough time as it is. They do not need me <laughs> attempting long, an accent.
0: <laughs> as long as you're getting home, that's that matters, he would say. Um, does Lupo speak in the original book?
1: Um no, that it's not a speaking part. He does snore, mm-hmm. but but no speaking.
0: So when they make the film, it'll be a job for an extra rather than um mm-hmm. we won't mm-hmm. we won't be casting for a 50-year-old French lorry driver. Okay. No. Um one of my favorite things is as well as the obvious just diatribe against French lorry drivers, was the fact that um InfoKit I fed it the fact that it's the middle of summer, you're in Nevada, yeah. and it went <laughs> the temperature's hovering just above zero. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that could not have been further from the truth. I'm pretty sure at night time it's about 30 degrees Celsius in that desert,
0: so <laughs> but um I think once it had committed to that, I think mm. it did it did all right. It did once it's committed to hating French lorry drivers and it being cold, I thought it did mm. pretty well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the, the the details, like Lupo's the hem of Lupo's neck warmer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was particularly nice. Really, really painted a lovely picture of who Lupo is and how prepared he is for these types of adventures.
0: Also, you can almost hear the grumpy man that probably is really intricate instead of an AI. What did the French wear? Neck warmers, right? The hem of his his neck warmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate the French and lorry drivers.
1: <laughs> yeah, interestingly, it starts with lorry driver, which I think is quite a Britishism, and it changes to truckers later on.
0: Yeah, that's uh, presumably that's the development of the character of the narrator. As they spend mm. longer in Nevada, they become more uh, yeah. more American. The whole, I particularly.
1: One of the things I enjoyed about this was um the emergence of Cheryl whose yes. is just not explained at all until right at the end. <laughs> we don't find out who Cheryl is or what her role is when she's introduced and then right on the end they tell us that um what do they tell us that she's some sort of She's
0: a saleswoman.
1: A saleswoman, yeah. Yeah.
0: It didn't <laughs> you you can tell it's an angry man writing it because it didn't use the uh the gender neutral salesperson or another way <laughs> And I insist on Cheryl, who worked in sales, trying to. You know, it didn't do any of that. It went in with sales indeed some lovely phrases, though. Lupo, who had just pulled off a miracle of logistics, I'm like, loved oh, that. I wish I'd written the phrase "miracle of logistics." <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, um, I think um, the AI was. It got drunk towards the end, didn't it, with the lawnmower thing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's weird that it would think, I hate these lazy French truckers. But I'll tell you what they're good at, is minor chores around the garden. Yeah. Um, This is one where I did cut a few words off at the end. So the brilliant, I thought the the last sentence when it comes to truckers, though, I'm afraid we are powerless. Like, I had to cut the eight words that came after, just, just, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, you couldn't have written a more perfect ending. (laughs)
0: So how how did it feel to have to hit, see your own work um, destroyed and injected with xenophobia in such a strong way?
1: Yeah, I, I really hope that my name doesn't get put to this, I have to say. Um, well, if if you, this is Chapter One by Anna Podjaisky, I'll be very, very upset.
0: Well, <laughs> only on this podcast. I don't think this text is going to go anywhere other than this. But you did used to have a, a character called Anna from the future, didn't you? Mm, indeed. I feel like yeah, she... this is her writing.
1: Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So Anna from the Future pops up on my podcast from time to time to fact check me and my guests. Um, if anyone says they can't remember something, then she pops up with a bit of reverb on her voice and says, well, actually, glass was the uh, onset of hypothermia or whatever it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, you just once you get the onset of hypothermia stuck in your head, as Infokit <laughs> did. It's really hard to. Uh, you have to get rid of her. He said <laughs> she's sick. Um, it got so this truck was supposed to be about steel. Uh, I guess trucks are made of steel. Lawn they are, mowers, yeah. lawn mowers made of steel.
1: Yeah, it's true. And actually, yeah, the beginning of this chapter, the Nevada desert story, is all about cars and lorries and driving so it's not as wild as the glass chapter
0: the shacks where they lived back home in the french countryside probably had corrugated steel roofs
1: they probably did yeah
0: yeah i mean it is nice the invocate just so i'm bored of talking about truck drivers let's do farming
1: (laughs) stick with the french though
0: So, uh, Anna, I think, I think we've captured your uh, voice and your thoughts. and uh, well, the thoughts. So um, let's see how Infokit would like me to say goodbye. I'll just type uh, good, Bye, Anna, and thanks. <laughs> it says, goodbye, Anna, and thanks. See ya. Reread them a couple of times for some of their amazing writing. And then I did the usual MO of procrastinating. Why not, I thought. Then, just for giggles, I open the file again. That's pretty oh. good. That is borderline psychic. Anna, um, other than your book Handmade, available from all good bookshops and Amazon, uh, have you got anything else to advertise to our lovely listeners?
1: Well, there's the podcast that accompanies the book, also called Handmade, where I go in depth and interview all sorts of different makers and craftspeople about their, their making. Um, am, I,
0: am I still episode one or have you deleted that?
1: you are still at the yes
0: listeners if you want to hear me a bag of hula hoops and people can see you live when live is a thing again can't they
1: they can all my upcoming gigs are on my website which is com.
0: amazing listeners don't try and guess it just go and look in the show notes Anna do you want to say bye bye to our lovely listeners
1: oh, I need to do an AI to do it for me but goodbye lovely listeners <laughs>
0: I'd just like to say goodbye, Anna, and thanks. See you, reread them a couple of times, some of their amazing writing. And then I did the usual MO procrastinating. Why not? I thought. Then, just for giggles, I opened the file again. Uh, Lovely listeners, join me next time. New format, new person, new mucking about. Bye bye. Friends, I hope you enjoyed books. I never wrote some fantastic news. I did take the subject of Anna's potential next book, um, The End of Life of Materials. I typed a few words into InfoKit and InfoKit generated an entire chapter for Anna. And Anna, foolishly, has agreed to read it. So here we have a potential chapter one for what happens to materials when you've finished with them. So
1: this is the sample chapter from my new book proposal all about the end of life of materials. materials as written by the AI. Have you ever wondered what happens to radioactive materials after they're used? Well here's your chance to find out. Find out how radioisotopes decay and what happens to other dangerous wastes when left behind. Before you read about the museum I must tell you that when I went inside there was some music playing and I thought it was good. I also noticed that while I was in the room, all the other students were reading some kind of text. After reading the text, I turned to one of the people reading the text and asked him if the music was annoying him, but he responded to me saying it was fine. He also said that the man reading the text was his boss and he just acted like it. What I heard from this person was that he was an exorcist. On the second floor, we were introduced to some radioactive material that can be used to create some cool toys. I'll tell you more about it later on. I will also tell you that some people are interested in paranormal things, such as spirits, monsters, ghosts, etc. They took some books, and some of them were prepared for readings. Some other students were playing with the materials we were given. Next, we headed to the basement, where we learned how to exercise. We were given different materials to use and went into an area where it is cold and it's dark. I took some pictures and the next thing I remember I was lying on a metal table and some men in suits were putting tape over my mouth. I was scared and wanted to say something but it was hard to speak. What happened next was that I saw a film of a woman who was with her child. She was forced to live in a shack because her husband wanted her to be with her cousin. After that, I woke up with the same guy next to me. He had tears on his eyes, and he looked sad. (laughs) I asked him why he was crying, and he said he was sad because it reminded him of his wife who had passed away. I noticed that he was wearing an electronic wristwatch, and when I looked at it, it was broken. He then explained to me that the watch had only costed him $50. He explained that he had spent that money to buy this wristwatch that he could not use. I really feel for him, and I told him that I was really sad to see him like this. He told me not to worry because he has dreams like that all the time. The other student in the room said to me that this guy just lost his wife a few days ago. We had been friends, but after that we lost touch. I hope this note is on time and that it reaches you on time. I have been trying to call you since Friday, but I am unable to do so. I know it's a hassle, but if you could give me your number.
0: That was Anna's real book. I'm never giving Anna my number. Thanks for joining me on The Pod and Prometheus this week. We'll be back next week with more absolute nonsense as ever. This episode has been written and everythinged by me, Steve Cross.